Church, open your Bibles. We are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and if you're turning there, it's going to be in chapter 21. Well, we today are doing something that uh, millions of Christians around the world are doing. We are celebrating what's called the triumphal entry of Jesus. The week of Jesus' life, the last week of Jesus' life, he entered Jerusalem uh, one week before, obviously, his death and then ultimately his resurrection. He taught in the city that week. There were all kinds of things, that, there were activities that happened that week as he was with his disciples uh, leading up to his death. And so we celebrate today as the entry time into the city. In order for us to make sure that we're kind of dialed in on this, there are two things that need to click in for us. Number one is some geography. We need to understand where Jesus is during this time of enter, enter, entering into the city. And we need to understand a little bit about the rhythms of Jewish life at that time. If we can make sense of those two things, we'll make more sense of this passage we're going to read in just a minute. In order to help you with that, I've got a map. And you know I like maps that kind of are orienting. And if you'll notice, right in the center of the map is the temple area. And the temple is obviously where uh, Solomon originally had built that temple. It was built upon and built upon. And Herod is the one that ended up building the temple in its spot where it was at the time of Jesus. If you'll notice to the right of that, it says the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is where Jesus began this entry into the city. During the time that Jesus was there, there was uh, pilgrims from all over the known world who were Jewish. And they were coming to this city because of the Passover celebration. Remember what the Passover is? It's the celebration of God's freeing the Jewish people from enslavement in Egypt. And if you remember, the angel passed over all the homes that had the blood of the lamb over them. And so again, all the pilgrims are coming to say, remember that day when we as uh, Jewish people were freed from slavery in Egypt and the miraculous things that God did. We're going to celebrate that for a whole week. And that was the rhythm of the Jewish people. I've got them up there for you because it starts uh, really up high on the Mount of Olives near a spot called Bethphage. And Bethany and Bethphage are two cities. Bethany is to the right a little bit more from where you see Bethphage, about a mile apart. And what would happen is people would stay in those little cities and then they would make their way down the Mount of Olives to the temple area during the day. So it was very difficult to spend the night at the temple area. So you went to an adjacent city and then you made your way in. And that's exactly what Jesus did too because Jesus stayed the night at Bethany at Mary and Martha's home and with Lazarus, their brother. And if you remember, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead a little bit prior to this. So Lazarus is, you know, the story of Lazarus is just circling all over the place and the city is just kind of you know, ripe with the anticipation that this guy named Jesus is on his way in. I've got a picture here and it's a panorama of the Mount of Olives down into the Kidron Valley right there and then up the other side. So right now you see that golden dome, that's where the Temple Mount area is. That's actually uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque to the left. And the Golden Dome there is a spot where we believe the original temple actually existed. So that's a modern day picture. But it gives you a good idea of 300 feet up. You're making your way down into that valley and then up the other side into the area where the temple is. That's where this is all taking place. If you ever go to Israel, you can actually see that vista and walk the very path that Jesus walked 
from, uh, again, up high on the area where Bethany was or Bethphage was down into the valley. All right, what I need for you to hear today is that there was all kinds of spontaneous gathering. People are hearing about Jesus coming into the city. They're hearing about, you know, this is the guy that raised Lazarus from the dead. And I mean, all that is just kind of swirling around the city. And so there's a level of excitement around the city. And we know the path that Jesus took and we know the excitement in the air. So let's listen as Matthew records to us what happened 2,000 years ago. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them in at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. Uh, Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the ground and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirring up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer and you've made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never heard out of the mouth of infants and of nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Lord, we've just read this story that happened truly 2,000 years ago of your entry into the city. Lord, it was an exciting day then, it's an exciting day now. Would you prepare our hearts? Would you unpack this passage for us that we might see the things you want us to see to welcome you today into our hearts, into our city? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's usually very elaborate celebrations that happen and all kinds of things that happen that need to happen around dignitaries visiting a foreign city. Whenever a foreign dignitary comes into a city, the red carpets come out, the photographers come out, the military band comes out, cannon shots come out, and it's a big deal when a head of state decides to visit a city. I've got many examples of that that I saw on YouTube this week as I was preparing. I've got uh, I've got Biden who is visiting places. I've got Trump who is visiting places. Obama who's visiting places like China and all the the world around. 
I've got the premier from China that has come to the United States. I've got the premier of China that's gone to most of Europe. I mean, it's a big deal when foreign dignitaries come into a place. I want you to understand what happens in modern times when a dignitary comes. And I'm very well aware that, well, it can be a very political process. In fact, who I decide to show you today might mean something to some people. And it might convey some things that I don't want to convey. I realize we live in a very politically charged time. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you some individuals that you probably don't know. I don't remember very well because I want you to pay attention to the process, not the politics. So I'm showing you today President Aquino of the Philippines, who's visiting the Prime Minister of Canada in 2015. All right, so watch this and pay attention to the process of what's happening here. When a foreign minister comes from another country into a country, it is like a choreographed ballet. It's down to the level of handshake that will be given, the band that will be playing the anthem usually of the visiting dignitary's country, flags that are flying, uh, cannons that are being shot off, photographers that are just in the right spots in order to be able to capture all of it, it's a big deal when a king comes to a new country or into a new city. Today we are celebrating Jesus who's coming into Jerusalem and it's a big deal because this king is coming into this city even if people don't completely understand who this king is yet. Now we have to remember something. Up to this time, Jesus has been telling people, don't tell anybody who I am. And he would keep, saying, keep says, saying this phrase. He would say, my time has not yet come. He told that to people that he healed. Don't say anything to anybody. My time has not yet come. He told that to the woman at the well. Don't say anything. My time has not yet come. Of course, many of those people did. They went off and said, how could I not tell somebody that I was healed and that you did it? But Jesus kept on saying, pump the brakes because my time has not yet come. And he was doing that because what Jesus was doing was preparing for this day of coming to the eventuality of a cross. 
And he was saying, my time of fulfilling all that my father has for me is not yet, so I'm waiting for that. What we notice today is that Jesus shifts gears. Jesus shifts gears and there is no longer this idea of wait, no longer this idea of don't say anything about me. Jesus enters the city and it's astounding because he now is saying fully, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. Here I am, and it's okay to welcome me into the city. The thing that we're going to find is that he meets a mixed reception. Not everybody is excited to hear and see Jesus. Let me explain today what Jesus does to declare in words and actions that he indeed is the awaited Messiah. Not just for the Jews, but indeed for the entire world. Jesus purposefully discloses today he is Messiah, even though it is met with a mixed reception, but he's still declaring that. How did Jesus declare he's Messiah? I want to look at that from four dimensions today. Let's go ahead and kick off with the first thing Jesus does. And he rides a donkey into the city, down the Mount of Olives, as we discovered, into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus tells his disciples as they get into uh, Bethphage, he says, hey, go to this such and such a person and go ahead and get a a donkey and its colt and bring them to me. And his word and his his reputation was so big around the cities at that time that anybody would have given him what he wanted. Sure, Jesus wants to borrow the donkeys, they're his. I mean, it would have been considered an honor. He says, just tell them that the Lord needs them and they'll give them to you. And that's exactly what Jesus does. The reason that Jesus rides a donkey into the city is very specific and Matthew gives it to us by quoting the spot in the Old Testament where it was prophesied that Jesus would ride a donkey into the city. He paraphrases Zechariah 9 verse 9 and here's Zechariah 9 9. Rejoice greatly daughter Zion, shout daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah by riding into this city on a donkey. And again, if you think about him riding a donkey, it's showing that he's peaceful. I mean, a donkey, you know, it's, it's something that's almost laughable with its floppy ears and its awkward gait. And he chooses that as the mode of trans- transmission or transportation to take him into the city. Now compare that again to maybe another king who might enter a city, maybe on something that's more like a war horse, and he's projecting a different idea. He's projecting domination. This Jewish king, Jesus, is coming into the city, and he's saying, I'm coming peacefully to you. I'm coming with a desire for uh, our relationship in order to prosper. Now again, people recognized Jesus was on the way in and they recognized that something special was about him and so they waved their palm branches. They went to local trees and they cut down those palm branches and they got them off and they waved those or they put them on the road with their their coats in order for Jesus to walk on those uh, on the way in. Why did they do that? Well, that was a sign that a national hero was coming. It was a, uh, a sign of great honor. And it was also a sign of victory. They were saying, we want to attach ourselves to this guy because this guy is bringing us a level of victory. The closest I can kind of come to this, and again, I'm going to use this very carefully, but a political flag that would be waved today that's saying something about that candidate, that's the equivalent of that palm branch. That palm branch is saying, 
we are investing hope into you. We are investing the idea that you're taking us somewhere. And so we're waving this palm branch in order to say, Jesus, we believe you're somebody that's really, really special. Jesus enters the city to this fanfare. And I want you to notice he does it very peacefully on an animal that is, again, uh, uh, an animal that's even demonstrating that I'm here as a way of peace. Contrast that, however, with the way Jesus comes in his second coming, and you will notice it is decidedly different. In fact, this week I went and read that. It's in Revelation 19, and I have that in the screens behind me. Listen to the way Jesus comes the second time, because it's very different than the way he came the first time. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, and with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a contrast. Jesus enters the city on this lowly donkey, and he's saying, I'm come peace, coming peacefully in order to pursue the will of God. The second coming is decidedly different, and he's here to well bring the judgment of God and to settle everything once and for all, and to bring the reign of God and the kingdom of God into full focus. The second thing Jesus did on that day 2,000 years ago in entering the city is he accepted the adulation of the people. Now, what does adulation mean? I know that's a very big word. It means excessive admiration or excessive praise. You know how you see somebody at times and guys will kind of give the nod. It's like, yeah, hey, you know, they give that nod. And it just means, hey, I recognize you over there. And, you know, there's nothing real big about it. It's just kind of the nod. Well, the people just didn't give the nod that day. They were gushing. I mean, they were falling over themselves in welcoming Jesus. And he allows them to do this. There's a festive atmosphere. There's a spontaneous atmosphere. And maybe that's one of the big contrasts between, again, the one I showed you with Aquino coming to Canada that was all scripted out months in advance. They knew exactly what was going to happen and what songs were going to be played and where they were going to walk and you know, what speeches were going to be given. And that was down to meticulous detail. That was not this time. Now, there was no announcement on Twitter, Jesus is coming. All they knew is it was Passover celebration. Everybody's here and Jesus is on the way in. And so everybody's flooding into the streets in order to welcome Jesus. Word spread. He was on his mile-long walk down that city and everybody's packing all the space and they're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What does Hosanna mean? We've got to understand that in order to understand what they were saying. And Hosanna means save now. Save now. So Jesus, we're waving these branches. We're saying Hosanna. And what we're saying is save now. What do we mean by that? Well, probably not what Jesus meant by that because they're not thinking right now of saving in the sense of saving from our sins. They're saying, save us nationally. Kick these Romans out. 
Let's get back to the heyday and the glory years of David. You're the promised king from David that's going to provide economic welfare to us. We're going to be our own nation again. We're going to let the good times roll with you, Jesus. And we want you to come on and be the king we want you to be. And so again, they envision this golden era when they're saying Hosanna because it's a time in which the state comes under a level of self-rule again if we can just get these pesky Romans out of our way. Isn't it amazing that Jesus accepts this adulation? He doesn't go to correct anybody. He just lets them pour out their praise. Even if all that they're saying, in their hearts at least, is not true, he, he, he doesn't want to diminish that. Right now, it's just this festive atmosphere. And they are welcoming a king, even if they don't completely understand who the king is. Researcher Christian Smith wrote a book a few years ago called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And this is what he surmised by many interviews and many uh, surveys that he took with teens. He said, most American Christian teens today have a faith that might be characterized as moralistic, therapeutic deism. I know that's a mouthful, so he explains what he meant by that. He says, according to this view of God, if we live good lives and we're kind to people, then God will provide for us therapeutic benefits like self-esteem and happiness. Other than that, God is not very involved in our world. This view of God has an astounding effect upon prayer. Smith found that American teens are praying people. In fact, 40% said they prayed daily. 85% said they prayed at some point uh, along the line. Only 15% said that they didn't pray. So again, a very praying group of people. This is what some teens that were interviewed said about their prayer lives. If I ever have a problem, I go to pray. It helps me deal with my problems. It calms me down for the most part. Praying just makes me feel more secure, like there's somebody out there helping me out. I would say prayer is an essential part of my success. Smith, however, focuses on the fact that there's two things that were generally lacking from most teens' prayer lives. And the thing that was lacking in most cases was repentance and the idea of adoration. Repentance and adoration. This is not a religion, he said, that's repenting from sin. Again, Smith concludes that this idea is one of a very distant God who's not very demanding because really all he's, do, he's there to do is to make us feel good and solve all of our immediate problems. And so there's no sense in which there's an idea of a greater God, a, a God worthy of worship, or one that's actually going to get into my stuff and call me out and call me to repent. I bring that up today, not because I'm down on teens in any way. I want teens to grow and flourish. I want that. But I call that out to say it's possible today to miss who the real Jesus is the same way that the people missed who Jesus was when they were welcoming him to the city. Jesus had one whole destiny on his mind and the people had a different destiny and it was possible to be confused about who Jesus was then and it's possible to be confused about who Jesus is now. Okay, Jesus has made his way down the Mount of Olives. He's ridden that donkey. He's accepted the praise of all the people. And now he's going to do two decided acts within the city. Two very important things. 
The first thing he does is he clears the temple. This is the way Matthew says it. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And so by clearing the temples, he asserts his authority over the temple leaders. We have to remember there's two things that are happening as people come into the city right now. They do two things. First of all, they get an animal that they're going to offer for sacrifice. And so they're getting an animal that's suitable for their sacrifice. And oh, by the way, animals are being sold right here for you to buy. They were also coming to bring gifts of money. And so they were going to give money to the temple in honor of their pursuit of God. Two very good things to do. The problem was that there were individuals there who were money changers or they were there for financial advantage. They wanted to make themselves wealthy rather than to help the people and rather they were there to actually serve God in the process. The chief priests and the leaders were allowing terrible things to happen at the temple. I have not been to the new Climate Pledge Arena. I hope to make my pilgrimage soon and see the Kraken play. Although I may wait until they can put a little better team on the ice next year. We'll see about that. But there's one thing I am not looking forward to. The concession stand. I have read, and maybe some of you can corroborate this, $9 bottles of water. $10 Starbucks. $16 craft beer. And if you need a little sustenance with your drinks, no worries, muchacho. $24 prime rib beef dip sandwich. Or, if you want something simpler, let's opt for the roasted bone marrow. After all, all of America knows that that is the premier signature snack of any sporting event is bone marrow. There is not a ballpark or a stadium, or an arena that is not robbing you blind. <laughs> the vast majority of fans, they hand over the money with just little more than a shrug. After all, the market charges what the market will bear, right? And most Americans say, give me another. I mean, so again, we just perpetuate this idea. This might be okay for a stadium, but it's not okay when it comes to the worship of God. God is against the fleecing of his people, especially as it relates to worship. On Temple Mount, people were able to come and buy these animals at inflated prices. In addition, oh, you brought your own lamb. Well, we have a little place over here where we inspect all of those animals and make sure that they're okay. Oh, yours doesn't pass muster, so you'll have to buy another animal. And that was the kind of thing that was happening. What else was happening? Well, if you brought your money, well, great. We're glad that you brought your money. But guess what? We only accept certain kinds of money here. We accept the temple money here. So go to the money changers over there, and they will take your, uh, your, your money, which has inscriptions on it we never could allow in the temple. I'm showing you a denarius right now from the ancient world, and guess whose picture is front and center on it? Caesar Augustus. Well, he's an idol worshiper. You all know that. There's no way that we could take that kind of money in the temple. And so if you'll 
take over here and trade your money for the approved money, then we'll take that coin into our coffers here and then we'll all be clean. Well, you were getting scammed over there and you were getting taken to the bank over there because people were not giving a fair exchange for money. And so this is just incensing Jesus and that's why he makes a ruckus and he turns over all the tables. The whole system is not as God ever imagined it or envisioned it. He envisioned a house of prayer. It had turned into a den of robbers in which people were more willing to make bank than they were to actually pray and welcome people. And that really torqued Jesus off and he did something about it. Now again, I ask you the question, is it okay for us to actually sell a book in the lobby? Is it okay for us to perhaps sell tickets to a retreat in the lobby? My answer to that is, yes, it is, as long as it's not taking advantage of somebody else. If it's a legitimate service, it's okay in God's eyes. God was not down on actually, you know, having people give money. He wasn't down on people making sacrifices. He called for that, and he called for their worship to be like that. But he was against the issue of people making a personal profit or somehow advantaging themselves out of the idea of worship. That's what he was down on. And that's what God is still down on today when it comes to that aspect of, again, uh, having some kind of a financial transaction as it relates to the church. All right, there's one final thing I want you to see that happened that Jesus did. And Jesus healed people to the amazement of the crowds. And finally, he affirmed the children. And the children were the ones that pointed out, man, this is what's happening. Everybody see this? He's healing people right now. And they're crying out, they're singing out, they, they, they just, they're just belting it out of their, their, their little lives and their lungs. Hosanna to the son of David. And the religious leaders see that and they're like, shh, 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 be quiet, be quiet. This is not your position, you, you can't say that. And they look to Jesus and they say, shut those kids up. Those, those kids cannot say those kinds of things around here. You're making us look bad and, and bad. And don't you hear what they're saying about you? And Jesus says to them, yeah, I do hear that. And Jesus says, out of the mouth of babes come praise. And he's quoting Psalm 8, verse 2. Look at this on the board. Through the praise of the children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. They knew he quoted that passage. And who do you think they thought they were in that story? They're the enemies of God. And they're just like blown out of the water and incensed that Jesus would imply that about them. And so they're filled with all kinds of indignation. Here's what I want you to hear. Jesus affirms those kids. And he says, how could they not but just see what, say what they see? And out of their little hearts comes purity. And out of their little hearts comes actually the way things really are. Adults want to whitewash it and make it clean, but they're just saying what's happening in their midst. And it's a glorious thing, Jesus says. When John was in uh, kindergarten, he had made friends at his little preschool or his kindergarten class. And one of the friends that he made was named Justin. And Justin invited John over for a play date. And we said, sure, we can go on over. Denise drives him over. She drives up to the house and realizes very quickly, huh, this family's doing okay. They are maybe not just rich, but they're rich. I mean, they're, you know, they're doing very well. So Jonathan goes in, he plays, and he comes out, and Denise you know, starts to you know, ask some questions. You know, how, how was it? John says, it was awesome, Mom. I got to ride in Justin's electric car. I got to go on his trampoline. I got to play on his many video games that he had. 
I mean, it was just nonstop fun from, st- you know, from start to finish. It was just awesome, Mom. And Denise very gently says, well, you know, sweetheart, we have to remember things are not what make us happy. And he says, oh, no, Mom, they make me very happy. <laughs> and he added on, and I wish I lived at Justin's house. <laughs> what does a mom do with that, right? Out of the mouth of babes, he's just saying, oh, no, it was a great day. Don't try to diminish that on me. (laughs) Children say it as it is. There's no filter with them. They just get after it. And Jesus is saying, I welcome that. I welcome that kind of unbridled praise. And just they say what they see, and it's a good thing by me. In the entry into Jerusalem, Jesus shifts gears, as I mentioned, and he's not careful anymore. He's not careful about people not knowing who he is. He's not careful about saying, my time has not yet come. His time has come. And he's opening the doors. He's thrown them wide open. And he accepts this title and the admonition or the recognition, I should say, that he is Messiah. The point is being made to us. They have little idea who the Messiah really is. Even if they're welcoming a Messiah into their city, they don't quite know who he is yet. They have no idea that he will be killed just a week later. They have no idea that the most humble and serving and gracious king has just come into their city. And he's come into their city with love and compassion to go to a cross. Why? To solve the biggest problems that humans have ever had, the problem of sin and death. And that's what Jesus is here to overcome. And so I ask you, what about your heart today? Is your heart given over to Jesus as we approach Easter week? Is it ready to welcome the king? Or are you recognizing some people are getting a little out of control and you, you, know, you kind of want to shush them, shush the excited people? Do you want a therapeutic King Jesus or are you prepared for a Jesus who says, hmm, I got some things I want to point out to you. There's some things for you to repent about. There's some things for you to change. Jesus is a powerful figure. Jesus is a kind and a loving person. But don't mistake that for his real ultimate purpose. His real ultimate purpose is to provide forgiveness of of sinful people like you and me. To people who are continually being asked by Jesus, would you repent and believe? Would you follow me? Would you follow my path? Become like me as you accept my gifts of of repentance and and forgiveness and and the Holy Spirit that's going to come and lead your way now. Here's what I want you to hear. For Jesus, he entered Jerusalem readily and he identified himself as the true and the respected Messiah. He did that 2,000 years ago and Jesus still comes to us today and says, I'm that Messiah that God has always planned. And I'm that Messiah, whether you've recognized it in your heart yet or not, that you actually need. Lord, what an electric story. We repeat this year after year after year on Palm Sunday, as we should. Because there's so much there. How could a heart take it all in all at once? And so repeat that as part of our rhythm of saying the life you lived was one of the greatest significance of anybody who's ever lived. And we welcome you today as our Messiah. We ask this, Lord, if there's parts of you being Messiah we're missing, would you just quicken us? Would you enlighten us? 
Let the Scriptures speak to us in even greater ways. And Holy Spirit, come in order to unclog any parts of our lives that may be restricting who you really are. We love you today, we worship you today, and we welcome you today as our Messiah, then and now and forever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.